This is Channel Attitude. Your voice, your right, your freedom. This is Vince Russo's The Brand. Hello, everybody. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Glass Onions. I am recording this on Saturday night, August 26th. 2023 man i am going to get into the second part of the conspiracy of whether or not the late great Jimi hendrix was killed by his manager mike jeffrey as told by ex-roadie james tappy wright we're going to finish up that story today. And remember, man, if anybody ever asks you, the walrus was in Didi Paul. Yes, looking through a glass onion. Here we go, everybody. When we last checked in, we learned that Mike Jeffrey, the manager of Jimi Hendrix, was in a heap load of trouble. He owed a lot of people a lot of money, man, including the mob. The IRS was on his tail. And his relationship with Jimi Hendrix, who he was representing at the time, was growing sour and sour as each day rolled on. So let's pick up this story where Mike was also becoming very concerned, not only about his worsening relationship with Jimmy, but about those he saw as posing a threat to his position and his income. The music business was and still is a hotbed of suspicion and paranoia. What does that sound like, bro? A hotbed of suspicion and paranoia, man. That's a page right out of the wrestling book. Maybe because of his involvement in Cold War activities, Mike's sense of paranoia was more finely tuned than most. He was always weary of those who are much closer to Jimmy than he would ever be and often tried to engineer ways of dividing and ruling. So with everything going on with uh, Mike Jeffrey financially, he's also now starting to get very, very, very paranoid concerning his relationship um, with Jimi Hendrix. Early on, he applied this technique to chass and record plant uh, staff like producer Eddie Kramer and engineer Gary Kelgren. But from 1969, Mike's paranoia became more focused and intense He even bugged Bob Levine's office to keep track of what was going on. So distant was he feeling from Jimmy and his circle. The band's PR agent in the States, Michael Goldstein, observed that Mike would stop at nothing to ensure the success of his artists, but he couldn't relate to them personally. Mike was very angry that Jimmy refused to tour and blamed much of this on his renewed relationship with drummer Buddy Miles. 
to compound, to compound the crime, Jimmy was working at the record plant with a new producer, Alan Douglas. Jimmy had met Douglas through Devon Wilson, a notorious New York groupie who had a strange and rather unhealthy relationship with Jimmy. Douglas was essentially a jazz producer who also had interest in films and books, and Jimmy quite liked his more New York bohemian laid-back style. So, man, as you could see, the more popular that Jimi Hendrix was getting, the more people were trying to lay their hooks into him, which was kind of sending his manager, Mike Jeffrey, over the edge. But the recording sessions were not very fruitful, and Alan Douglas was no match for Mike Jeffrey, so much so that Alan wrote to Jimmy in December 69 saying he didn't want to produce him anymore. Still, Jimmy pressed on with plans for a new band with buddy and bassist Billy Cox. Without Mike's permission, the band of Gypsies played two dates at Fillmore East over New Year 1970 before Mike intervened, not only firing Buddy, but insisting that Jimmy reform the, the experience. Noel Redding was put on standby, but eventually the Cry of Love tour kicked off with Billy Cox on bass and Mitch Mitchell. The U.S. tour was a good money spitter, spinner. But still, Mike had mounting debt. A critical element in the story is whether or not Mike had taken out an insurance policy on Jimmy's life. Bro, every time there is an insurance policy taken out on somebody's life, that is a red flag. When Warner Brothers concluded a whole new set of agreements with Jimmy in 1968, they took out an insurance policy, something which had become standard practice since the death of Otis Redding in 1967. Mike also prepared, prepared a similar policy, and the document was in with a whole pile of concert contracts waiting for signature when they were in Hawaii filming Rainbow Bridge. Bob Levine spotted it and says he warned Jimmy not to sign it. Tappy says he did. So now the plot thickens, bro. As Mike Jeffrey takes out an insurance policy on his client, Jimi Hendrix. Although from Mike's point of view, Jimmy was back on track, their relationship was souring by the day. Jimmy was incensed that by forcing him to fire Buddy, he was now interfering in the creative side, something he had never done before. Mike now had one eye on the calendar. His contract with Jimmy expired on the 1st, December 1970, and he became increasingly convinced that Jimmy was going to jump ship. With Electric Lady Studio at least partially open, Jimmy had been working there for about a month. The very last thing he wanted to do was more touring. This is much like the Beatles, bro. These guys got toured. They, they, they got burnt out of touring real, real quick, man. And they just wanted to create new music in the studio, take a little bit of a break. But the money, guys, was in the touring that's where the money is. So, man, management 
is going to try to press you to tour. So the very last thing Jimmy wanted to do was more touring, but he signed contracts to tour Europe in the autumn of 1970. A lackluster performance at the Isle of White, of White, uh, of White Festival was followed by a disastrous show in Aarhus, Denmark, which was stopped only a couple of, after only a couple of songs. Jimmy was still reeling from the effects of a handful of unidentified pills he had taken earlier just to block the misery of his situation. Worse was to follow in Germany on the Isle of Femorin, Femorin, I believe that's how you say it, where the atrocious weather and warring hell's angels escapulated the sorry mess of Jimmy's faltering career. So Jimmy did not want to tour. They booked a couple of, uh, they booked a tour in Europe in 1970, incapacitated, incapacitated the, the sorry mess. That, that were a disaster. So Jimmy didn't want to tour. He did anyway because of the pressure. And that tour was a disaster, bro. You can see, you can see this, 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 this situation, man, is, is hitting a pinnacle. We, we, we can see it. All things are adding up to something very, 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 very bad happening. So Mike knew the clock was running out on his contract with Jimmy. He had a mountain of debt, which included two creditors you didn't mess with, the mafia and the IRS. But while it is true that Mike's management contract with Jimmy expired at the end of 1970, Mike still had quite an investment in Jimmy's career. He had a half share in the studio, Various considerations as a result of the new deal struck by Warners with Jimmy in 1968. And because of that little exclusion clause from 1967, had rights over two films, Jimmy Plays Berkeley and Rainbow Bridge. So he still, he still had his claws into Jimmy uh, for a good degree. And while Jimmy might have made a lot of noise about finding a new manager, who could that have been? The only name ever mooted was Alan Douglas, and Jimmy knew full well that Alan was not even close to being as effective as Mike. So it needed to be a major player who was also prepared to take on Mike Jeffrey with all that might entail. That said, if Mike had lost Jimmy, he would have lost the share of the concert revenue which, as we have seen, was the most immediate and lucrative cash cow. And given the level of Mike's paranoia over money and Jimmy, it was enough that he believed it. He might have calculated that Jimi Hendrix was worth more to him dead than alive. But did he engineer it? Very, very interesting, bro. The plot thickens. I mean, again, man, when it comes to these theories, they seem really far-fetched. But as we are getting into the final details of this story, man, we are seeing that Mike Jeffries is getting desperate, bro. He is getting a little desperate. The key to the last few hours of Jimmy's life lies with the testimony 
of Monika Danneman. Born into a wealthy German family, Monika was a talented artist whose career as a skater was cut short by injury. She first met Jimmy very briefly in Germany in early 69 and not again until a few days before his death. Although she claimed that Jimmy kept in touch writing her letters, she refused to let anybody see. I interviewed Monika in 1989 for my biography, Electric Gypsy, traveling down to Seaford on the south coast of England. The house was situated in a quiet, respectable street. She opened the door, and there she stood, looking exactly as she did the day Jimmy died. Striking blonde hair, heavily made up, wearing a crushed velvet dress and a jangle of jewelry. The sense that time had stood Still, for Monika, was underlined when I went inside. The walls were covered in her artwork. Every painting featured Jimi Hendrix. The house was a shrine. She was very friendly and hit a quiet way. Told me the same story she told the coroner at Jimmy's inquest and subsequently all the other journalists and writers who over the past 20 years have tried to undercover what happened. The essence of her story was this. Jimmy was booked into the Cumberland Hotel near Marble Arch, but was actually staying with Monica in the basement flat of the Sismarkin Hotel about 10 minutes drive away. During the afternoon of the 17th of September, they went with some people they just met to a flat near Baker Street. They returned to the Samarkand around 8.30 p.m. and stayed there until the early hours of the morning when Jimmy asked to be driven to another flat not far from the Cumberland Hotel in order to tell the perennial jealous Devin Wilson, who had flown in with Alice Douglas and his wife, that he was now engaged to be married. Monica dropped Jimmy off came back about 30 minutes later, and they returned to the Samarkin about 3 a.m. They talked. Monica made Jimmy a sandwich. They got into bed about 6 a.m. Monica took a sleeping pill and fell asleep about an hour later. Jimmy was still awake, and she didn't see him take any pills. She said she woke at 10 a.m., saw Jimmy was asleep, and she went out to get some cigarettes. When she came back about 15 minutes later, she noticed Jimmy had been sick and she couldn't wake him up. Not knowing who Jimmy's doctor was, she made some phone calls to his friends, eventually reaching Eric Burden, who told her to call an ambulance. That was 11.18 a.m. It arrived nine minutes later. She said that the ambulance drivers were very relaxed, no blue lights, and she traveled with Jimmy in the ambulance to St. Mary Abbott's Hospital. Monica waited around and was eventually told by a nurse that Jimmy was dead. The main thrust of her story was to blame the medical staff for his death, in particular the ambulance drivers who she said had Jimmy upright all the time. I knew what Monica would say, and so I had little cause to question any of it until I went down to the hospital. I checked the hospital's admissions register for that day, 18th of August, 1970, but could find no record of Jimmy's admission. 
I questioned Walter Price, a hospital porter who had been on duty that day. Jimmy was never admitted, he told me. He was taken straight to the morgue. Wow, now there you have a, um, there you've got much confusion in the story because Monica is saying she traveled to the hospital with Jimmy. And now you have somebody at the hospital, Walter Price, saying that Jimmy was taken straight to the morgue which meant that he had to be, I guess, announced dead on arrival. What he said was not entirely accurate, but doubt now creeps in about Monica's story. Checking back on her past statements, the bare bones of her story remain, but her actions and the timings altered with each telling. The discovery of those inconsistencies began a chain of events that ended not only in a much clearer picture of what happened, but a demolition of Monica's story. She vainly fought back with threats of legal action against anybody, including me, who doubted her word. Wow, very interesting, man. There's a lot going on here. I did not know that uh, this case went this deep, bro. I did not realize that. So as I'm reading this, I'm getting an education along with you. As Tappy, remember Tappy's the roadie, makes clear in his book and confirmed by everybody in Jimmy's orbit, he regularly fell in love with the woman of his dreams showering her with intimate whisperings and promises of undying love. Maybe sometimes he believed it himself, but mostly Jimmy was charming his way to sex. It felt to Monica to be the last woman Jimmy would ever woo, and she convinced herself that he was sincere about marrying her and setting up home in England. By common consent, the only woman who Jimmy generally cared about and who cared about him without any ulterior motive was Kathy Etchingham. I wish they'd stayed together, says Tappy. Jimmy might still be alive today. Jimmy and Kathy lived together with Chaz and his wife when Jimmy first arrived well before he was famous and later shared a flat together in Mayfair. And it was Kathy in the early 90s, added by Mitch Mitchell's wife, Dee, who took on the task of uncovering the circumstances of Jimmy's death. Incredibly, neither the ambulance drivers nor the police who attended the 999 call, nor the doctors who did actually go through the motions of trying to revive Jimmy in the hospital, were ever called to give evidence. For reasons best known to himself, the coroner, Gavin Thurston, just wanted this done and dusted as quickly as possible. The cause of death was cited as inhalation of vomit caused by barbiturate intoxication and with no evidence of foul play or suicide, Thurston declared an open verdict. Kathy and Dee tracked down all these people and others besides. They gathered so much new evidence that the attorney general ordered a police investigation. As it happened, a number of those who are happy to speak privately to Kathy either wanted nothing to do with the police 
or change their stories for fear of publicity. So the inquest was not reopened, but their testimonial stand. And so the story now looks like this. Monica and Jimmy did go to the flat of some complete strangers in the afternoon, but Jimmy stayed far longer than Monica wanted to, enjoying the attentions of the young women who were there. And when they eventually left around 10.40 p.m., the owner of the flat, Philip Harvey, said that Monica went crazy and was screaming and shouting at Jimmy all the way out in the street. Later, she did take Jimmy to a party, but he was there much longer than 30 minutes, probably a good few hours. It was a flat belonging to a businessman with links to track records, Peter Cameron. Other present included Devin Wilson, Alan Douglas, and his wife, Stella. Monica came back to collect Jimmy. He told Stella to get rid of her. But Monica kicked up such a stank that he had to leave. When Eric Burden asked Monica why she didn't call an ambulance, she said that she was scared because there were drugs in the room. So first on the scene was Eric's roadie, Terry Slater, who told Kathy that he and Monica cleared out the flat going across the road to some adjacent gardens where they buried the drugs. Meanwhile, the ambulance drivers arrived to find Jimmy dead and alone in the room. Following procedure, they tried to resuscitate him in the ambulance, but he was clearly gone, and this would explain why they were so relaxed and didn't rush through the streets. Terry said that he and Monica viewed all this from across the street. The doctors at the hospital also tried resuscitation, but they could see it was hopeless. Jimmy had been dead for hours. Every time Monique told a story, critical details changed. The time they went to sleep, when she got up, whether or not she went out for cigarettes, and so on. It transpired Jimmy had swallowed nine of Monique's German sleeping tablets, the equivalent of 18 times the recommended dose. And this is what killed him. Maybe she blamed herself for leaving them lying around. Maybe she felt guilty if Jimmy had taken all those pills so he could escape from her constant nagging. Or as she told Terry Slater, maybe she was just scared. Here was a 22-year-old white girl, a stranger in a strange land from a wealthy background with a very conservative father, caught in a bedroom full of drugs with a world-famous black musician. Could it be that on discovering Jimmy dead, she panicked and fled the hotel and that all her strange behavior and inconsistent stories were the product of covering up this moment of weakness? The problem was made worse for Monica over the years because she told everybody about not calling the ambulance immediately. So it became the wisdom among fans and other musicians that Jimmy died because she was delayed. And where was Mike Jeffrey while all this was going on? He was definitely in London on Sunday, the 13th of September to visit Danny Halpern at Track Records. By all accounts, he was desperate to find Jimmy to discuss an upcoming court case concerning claims that Jimmy had signed a deal with PPX Records before he signed with Chaz and Mike. Did Mike stay in London? 
No, said both his assistant, Trixie Sullivan and Jim Marin, who both maintained Mike was in major cup when the news came through. Came through, I'm sorry. However, Bob Levine tells a different story. Interviewed by writer John McDermott, he said that it took a week after Jimmy's death for Mike to call the New York office pretending that he had only just found out. But I knew he was lying because I had spoken to people who saw him at a party track records had staged in London the night before Hendrix died. And who were these people? According to Bob, the very same people that had been at the flat of Peter Cameron, the man with links to track records, where Jimmy had been seen that same evening. Devin Wilson and Allen and Stella Douglas. Could this be one and the same party with Mike arriving and leaving early and Jimmy turning up much later? Wow, this is a long story. We're almost done, though, bro. I'm very interested in this. I hope you are, man. As deep as Kathy and B were able to dig, there are still two significant and unexplained aspects to Jimmy's death. The first, that is, the first is that he was found fully clothed on top of the bed. Every version of Monica's story has him going to bed together, which by any normal interpretation means getting undressed and pulling back the covers. The second point is that both the ambulance drivers and the doctors who attended Jimmy at the hospital say that Jimmy was in a real mess. Dr. John Bannister was a surgical registrar on duty that day. When Dr. Bannister read my book, he wrote to me from Australia. The very striking memory of this event, he wrote, was a considerable amount of alcohol in his larnix and farnix. I recall vividly the large amounts of red wine that oozed from his stomach and his lungs. Yet, the toxicology report revealed an alcohol blood level equivalent to about four pints of beer, and in any case, Jimmy had an unusually low tolerance to alcohol. Once, when he'd had a little bit too much, he totally trashed the hotel bedroom. Earlier that month in Sweden, Jimmy had swallowed pills, but there was no alcohol involved. However, inconsistent in her testimony, nothing Monica said suggested that Jimmy had drunk a lot of wine nor had he done so earlier in the evening. And there was no mention of empty wine bottles in the room, so where did it come from? Well, I would assume the party, no? The open verdict came as a great relief to both Warner Brothers and Mike. If the verdict in any way suggested suicide, foul play, or that Jimmy had somehow contributed to his own death by reckless behavior, then the insurance company would have refused to pay out. In fact, while the new police investigation was underway, the BBC tracked down the original insurance investigator who looked into Jimmy's death, who confirmed that he had been looking for ways not to pay, but refused to reveal the contents of his file. On the strength of a poem written by Jimmy before he died, a very stoned Eric Burden went on British television to declare that Jimmy had committed suicide which brought a stern warning from Warner Brothers to shut up or else. And if Mike was convinced he'd lose Jimmy, as Noel Redding pointed out later, his death was very convenient for Mike's health and well-being. Tappy says he was able to clear all his debts and, moreover, offer Jimmy's father, Al, the sole beneficiary of Jimmy's estate, 
nearly $250,000 for Jimmy's half share in Electric Ladyland Studios. There was a curious epilogue involving Monica and Mike. In the immediate aftermath of Jimmy's death, there were plenty of rumors flying around that Mike had been involved. In her book of artwork published in 1995, Monica wrote that even so, when she was in New York at the end of February 1971, she went to see Mike at Electric Lady's studio, the man who everybody told her would do anything to buy silence. All they seemed to speak about was the possibility that Mike could become her manager to promote her artwork. She says that she specifically asked Mike to come to her to come to her to hotel room to discuss things privately. Monica wrote that she resisted Mike's offers and flew off to Seattle, but why did she seek him out in the first place? Wow, so there is a connection there between Monica the last person he was with, and Mike Jeffrey, his manager. Jimmy's premature death, age 27, was followed in the years to come by the deaths of other key figures who died before their time. Always battling against heroin addiction, Devon Wilson fell to her death in mysterious circumstances from the Chelsea Hotel in February 1971, while Mike Jeffrey died age 39 in 1973. For Noel and Mitch, it was always a case of what do you what do you do after playing in the Jimi Hendrix experience? The answer was not much. And although Mitch fared better than Noel, both drank heavily as they slipped rapidly into obscurity. Noel died age 57 in May 2003. Mitch followed in 2009, age 61. Chaz Chandler was also only 57 when he succumbed to a heart attack in July 1996. The same fate which later struck down uh, Hendrix historian Tony Brown, also in his 50s, who more fully documented the events leading up to Jimmy's death. Wow, bro, a lot of people who surrounded Jimi Hendrix, dying at a very, 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 very early age. And what about Monica? As her story was crumbling in the face of new evidence, she made one accusation too many, and Kathy Etchingham obtained a court order banning her from telling any more lies to reporters about Kathy and her investigation. Monica breached the order and had to face Kathy in open court. She was found guilty of contempt of court on Wednesday, August 3rd, 1966. Always regarded as mentally quite frail and liable for 30,000, I guess that's in uh, uh, European money, in cost. Tuesday, two days later, she committed suicide. Her body found in a fume-filled Mercedes at her home in Seaford where I'd interviewed her seven years before. There was no suicide note, and predictably some, including her partner, guitarist Uli John Roth, speculated that she too was murdered. Wow, how come this movie has never come out? Where's this movie, bro? There well may be somebody out there who knows exactly what happened to Jimi Hendrix between 4 a.m. and 8 a.m. on Thursday, uh, September 18, 1970. And although the inquest was not reopened, 
The case remains open. There is no statutes of limitation on murder. Wow, bro. That, uh, that is a story that I think is, um, definitely, definitely, definitely worth looking into, man. Um, a lot of people involved in this story dying untimely deaths in their mid fifties. And then the, the woman who was last with him winds up committing suicide. Lot, lot, lot going on in that story. But, you know, as we got to the end, there, there were four hours unaccounted for. And to this day, bro, uh, nobody knows what happened in those four hours. Man, that was a very, very interesting story about the, um, the death um, of uh, the great late Jimi Hendrix, man. I hope you guys enjoyed that. I learned a lot, man. Very, very interesting. Makes me want to go a little further down the rabbit hole, which I probably would. As always, guys, any cases you want to throw my way, man. Somebody sent me a great story about George Reeves, uh, Superman, who I may look into next week. Very, very interesting story. Next week, bro, when we come back here at Glass Onions. Thanks for joining me, everybody. I'll see you all next week. <laughs>